Hello and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm Lorena Turner. I'm a lecturer in the Communication Department at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, California, and I'm also a photographer. I recently spoke with architectural photographer Jade Dosku on her new book, Lost Utopias. Lost Utopias is the culmination of a nine-year photographic study of former World's Fair sites across North America and Europe. Included in Jade's book are such iconic monuments as the Seattle Space Needle, the Eiffel Tower, and New York's Unisphere, which if you're from New York or you've been to New York, it's at the end of the Seven Line in Queens. Her work is shot on a large format camera. She uses film. And in her work, she hopes to illustrate the utopian architecture and art that has surrounded World's Fairs across both the 19th and 20th centuries. With a foreword by fellow architectural photographer Richard Parr and an introduction by Jennifer Minner, who is a professor in the City and Regional Planning Department at Cornell University, Lost Utopia is an exquisite study of how optimism can shape a landscape and how time can retrieve it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello and welcome to New Books in Photography. Today I'm talking with Jade Doskow about her new book, Lost Utopias. Welcome to the podcast, Jade. Great. Thank you so much, Lorena. You're welcome. Um, So your book, Lost Utopias, comes out in October of 2016. Mm -hmm. And um, if you could tell tell us a little bit about that book. What is it about? Certainly. Um, Well, I am a photographer who kind of specializes in architecture that's been repurposed or abandoned or just completely in a different state than when it was first created. Um, And Lost Utopias is the culmination of a nine-year project of the remaining architecture and landscaping of international world's fairs. Um, So there's a lot of kind of futuristic architecture and sculptural objects that exist in this completely new context because when they were created, there was not often a lot of vision for what would happen after these temporary events closed. Uh, So in the book, there are 70 photographs, all color and large format, uh, taken over the last nine years from 25 different sites in North America and Europe. And there's two opening essays by a mentor of mine, Richard Pear, who's a highly respected scholar of architectural photography and an amazing artist in his own right. Uh, Jennifer Minner, PhD, who's a professor at Cornell of urban planning and preservation. And then in the back of the book, there's an interview between myself and Vladimir Begolovsky, kind of looking at how the project came to be. And there's also a little image glossary because there's just all of this kind of colorful background information for all of these different sites. Hmm. So um, we'll get, we'll talk about the book a little bit more later. I, I would like to know about all the different parts of it and about your process and about your thinking along the way. Um, but first, tell us, tell us about you. Tell us about how you got into photography, um, about your education, um, things like that. Certainly. I got into photography a little bit later in life. Not that much later. I was an undergrad, <laughs> so I was probably 17 or 18. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I wasn't one of those people who was born with a camera, you know, in hand. Um, as a kid, I would say I would, I grew up in a real, in an old house by American standard standards is about 275 year old. And, um, I think the, I was always really sensitive to the aura of space around me. And so even as a kid, I was 
kind of absorbing the energy of living in this very old house. And then my grandmother lived in this small apartment in the Bronx. So just kind of, you know, responding to the very different sensibilities of, of space, which I think Guy Debord termed psych, uh, psychogeography in the 60s in France. So kind of mm-hmm. that idea. Um, so, you know, time moved on. I started college in New York City at, at uh, New York University. And started to just kind of dabble in photo classes. Now, around this time, I was also working as a bicycle messenger in New York, which is totally nuts, but I did it for a few years. And year two, I got in a pretty bad accident. And um, at that time, I, I was aiming to train to race and was really, really into cycling. And so basically, I was laid up for about a year and couldn't get around really well. So I, so, you know, I was a bit depressed. And started to make some self-portraits to kind of explore how I was feeling at this time. Um, so at NYU, one of my professors, uh, prof- Barnaby Rue, um, recommended me for a visual arts award. And so I ended up winning this award for these self-portraits. And, you know, again, I was only 18, so I wasn't in any kind of serious where should I go with my life mindset. But I did mm-hmm. think, well, if people are responding to this the way I'm, I'm using this medium, maybe it's worth investigating further. Um, so at that point, I finished school and I decided to find work in photography. And I never had a real interest in commercial work, but more just kind of exploring where my interests led me. Um, so at this point, I got a job as a printer at one of the most respected labs in New York called LTI. And at that time, which was, I guess, 2000, you know, they had labs all over the place. They had labs in LA, Miami, New York, and London, and people were still shooting film. So we were getting, you know, hundreds of rolls and sheets of film by very top photographers. So we had work from Joel Sternfeld, we had work by Patrick Demarchelier, Stephen Klein, Stephen Mizell. So a lot of these big fashion names and big names in art uh, were bringing the work in. And I was only doing contact printing because I was a beginner. But I learned so much just from seeing kind of the straight, the straight material from these beautiful negatives. Um, also, at this time, we, I was exposed to large format architectural negatives. And I just thought they were really magical. Um, mm. That just this delicate sheet of film could contain it all these, pers- you know, very complex perspective and layers. And the quality of light was so exquisite. Um, and I would say through printing the work of some of these masters, I started to become pulled in the direction of examining architecture specifically um, through through the lens. A um, couple of years after that, I moved to Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is now a very hot neighborhood. But when we moved there in 2003, it was literally a ghost town. Um, there were packs of wild dogs on the street. Uh, half of the literally half of the townhouses were abandoned in the neighborhood. Um, so it it was a very kind of desolate and dreamlike environment for a young artist to move to. Um, So at that point, I started photographing the unused warehouses and townhouses around Red Hook. And, you know, I never like to think of something as completely abandoned because an abandoned building is still home to animals, still home to plants. So it's, you know, kind of takes on a new life, in my opinion. It's not just abandoned, right? Sure. Um, So... For a while, I was doing these kind of, you know, Edward Hopper-esque pictures of Red Hook, a lot of very long exposures in the middle of the night. I would 
set my alarm for two and three in the morning and go out with a camera and, and do these long exposures of the neighborhood. Um, and at that point I, I started to establish a rapport with a local gallery and they loved this red hook work and gave me my first solo show and representation in 2005, um, which was quite exciting because I was only 25. So it was quite thrilling to kind of start off that way. Um, so then decided to kind of get more serious conceptually and pursue a graduate degree. Um, so I, in 2006, I started the MFA photography program at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And this was a wonderful experience because their faculty is just incredible. I mean, some of the finest minds in the world in um, photography and art and conceptualizing how theory kind of binds these things together. Um, and it really kind of pushed me to think very carefully about what I was trying to say, how to say it, and how to execute it perfectly um, in, in terms of my technical skills. Um, so it was actually during our thesis project at SVA that I began the Lost Utopias um, series and then just kind of took off with it after I finished the program there. Wow. So it's a, a long journey, it sounds like, to get to get to uh, to get to kind of where you are now. Nine years is a is a lot of time to invest in a in a single project for sure. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the book. Why why did you decide upon this as a series? What was it about the either the was it the idea of World's Fairs or was it the the locations or was it kind of a combination of those things? It was a combination. I mean. Um... The idea struck me when I was traveling in Seville and we were, I was with my family and we were on one of these tourist buses, you know, on the second level and very randomly it stopped at the 1992 World's Fair site in Seville and visually it was a very surreal experience because, you know, the city of Seville is very old and all of a sudden we're driving across these bridges designed by Calatrava. And then here we are at this site where there are these rusty flagpoles kind of clanking in the wind. Um, all of these white, white postmodern buildings that were kind of half used. I mean, it was very strange that they took us there. Mm. Um, but the thing is, every hosting city is so proud of these sites, no matter what shape they're in. It's such a huge part of a city's legacy to say, we hosted the Olympics, we hosted a World's Fair. Um, so that's why they took us there. And I was, I immediately became very intrigued because I just thought the whole experience was, was very bizarre. And there were so many acres of land that weren't really being utilized by the city. And so it seemed like a poor use of public space. Um, so, you know, immediately just brought to mind all of these ideas that were kind of inherent in the Red Hook works, such as how do you preserve historic structures? How do you, how do you treat structures that aren't necessarily important? And how do you even make that decision if they're worth preserving for the benefit of the city or not? How do you make that call? Um, and as I started working and researching this topic more, I realized that every one of these sites is highly complex in terms of kind of the major players, the architects and designers that were part of it, um, and how every single city didn't know what to do with the buildings afterward, or they did, or they repurposed it, um, and just kind of how these 
odd peripheral sites become part of the contemporary urban landscape, no matter where it is, and how the citizens use it or don't use it or disregard it or don't. Um, so, yeah, I would say after that trip to Spain, it was kind of a can of worms that had been opened up for me. And as I, the more I researched, the more fascinating it became. And also, I'd never been to a World's Fair. I've seen the remnants of the 1964 fair on the, on the outskirts of Queens in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of everybody I know in New York, that's their experience. You drive on 495 out of the city and there's this very weird looking kind of carousel of a building <laughs> that's abandoned. It's like, right. what is that? And there's a giant globe. What is that? Um, so, you know, so my, my personal experience in New York was also just of this very <laughs> otherworldly remnants that are on a public park. Um, so, you know, at that point I just started shooting. I, you know, again, I just started grad school. So I, you know, after the first year I spent five weeks in Europe, dragged my sister along as my assistant. And we just, you know, I brought about, I think four or 500 sheets of film. Um, and I also started shooting large format film because it's much better, uh, for shooting architecture than any, any of the smaller formats. So I was kind of bringing about 12 bags of equipment with me, shooting big sheets of film. And that, and I mean, surprisingly, I still use some of those pictures, which is kind of mind blowing to me because I feel like I was such a novice in 2007. Um, But you know, when you really, (laughs) I put my mind to it and really just tried to understand as best I could what was happening in these places. And afterward, after the first five weeks of shooting and, and probably about six different, six or seven different shoots in North America and returning to the New York City site, I started to really understand how complex the project was. And that I think is what kept me, it kept me engaged. Um, Cause it's, it is difficult, especially when you live in New York city, people want new projects all the time, you know, right. like that's, what's exciting. You, oh, what's, what's your new project? You're still working on that. You know, everybody right. has like five projects they're talking about. And um, I guess I've always been kind of a, uh, I don't a know. One project person. There we go. <laughs> I find something I'm drawn to and I really do it. <laughs> you know? Delve deep into it. Yes. Um, let and, me. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I wanted to ask you about what you saw in Seville. And I, I, I see on, um, on, let's see, it's page 99 in your book, which is plate 53. Um, okay. There's a, there's a, a really compelling image of, um, you know, I, I, my understanding is that World's Fair sites were very large, that they took yes. up many acres. So, so what, so what's on page 99 is, is one, you know, one point of view of one part of the space that was the World's Fair. Um, exactly. And you, it was something that you said when you were describing it just a minute ago, that there was, as if you saw the structure, and then there was the space that was around it. And that space typically in, in, well, in that particular location, it looks like around the building, the area around the building just is not, is no longer used or it's not kept up. So mm-hmm. it has a kind of dystopian quality to it. Yes, it certainly does. Is that, is that something that you found to be a consistent thing in your, or an element in the sites that you visited? You, you said sometimes they were repurposed and then sometimes they weren't. But but was there something that was maybe I mean, even I'm thinking of the one that's in Queens, the site that's mm-hmm. in Queens. I think when people go there, even now in the year 2016, it's still it feels like it's a public park, but it still feels like it's not 
used, you know, it feels old and it feels, I mean, people have, you know, plenty of events there, but, but there's something kind of, um, I don't know, disconnected about how the space is being used currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great, a disconnect is a great way to describe, um, these sites. And I mean, at this, I haven't photographed every site on the planet yet. I've photographed 25 sites. That's what's in the book. Mm. Um, but out of the 25 sites that I photographed, the only city I would say that had a complete and full vision for, you know, complete reuse of site Mm -hmm. was, is Paris. Um, Paris reused the sites around the Eiffel Tower for, I think, three or four different world's fairs. Um, you know, so, so the Parisians had a longer view, I would say. And in America, you know, of course, we don't have the sense of history that Paris has. We're, not, we're a much newer country. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I would say it's, it's a almost arbitrary, the differences I see per site. Um, For example, when I got to San Antonio in 2013, they were in the act of demolishing fair buildings in 1968. So I was there and they were demolishing. And walking around that site, it it also had a sense of disconnect because their iconic structure is called the Tower of the Americas. And it was built four years after the Space Needle, but it's much smaller in scale. I mean, San Antonio is a smaller city. Um, so it kind of feels like an imitation of the Space Needle, but very scaled down. And that's kind of, that was kind of the only attraction. And the park around it is beautifully maintained. But then within the beautifully maintained park, for example, and all of the, <laughs> all of the photo buffs out there will, will feel sad at this. The Kodak Pavilion specifically was completely abandoned. It had piles of garbage in front of it. Um, oh, so no, that's so sad. <laughs> I knew it was Kodak Pavilion. <laughs> um, and that was the golden days, of course, 60s. Um, so, you know, so, and I actually have contacts at several of the sites, and, and one of my contacts in San Antonio keeps updating me, like, well, they've, you know, executed this new master plan on the site, and they've demolished, like, this building, this building, this building since you've been here. So it's... You know, so I get these updates because every site is just so different. Um, and I mean, I think the most the most consistent approach is to nicely manicure the park while keeping one or two buildings still in, in function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Queens is one of the wackiest ones just because it's New York. Right. So. Mm-hmm. But of course, New York is huge, and there's only so much money to go to every park and every place that people go to. And Queens isn't Manhattan, right? Only Manhattan is Manhattan. So it's not going to get the same treatment as Central Park, you know? Right. Um, and the the Queens site has actually been in the news a lot the last few years, because 2014 was the 50-year anniversary of that site. And so all of a sudden, people started saying, oh, wow, what is this building? It's designed by Philip Johnson. Well, what's going on, you know? Um, like it, has, and, it suddenly has this new, a new kind of value to it. Exactly. That, mm-hmm. yeah, people suddenly were re-aware of its existence. And um, a filmmaker named Matthew Silva even made a really lovely documentary on the paradox of this structure, Um, So I think that came out last year. And um, I think the city awarded $6 million to stabilize the structure. But according to different architectural firms, it would actually require about 60, 60 million to make it functional again. 
Mm. Um, so there's been competitions recently for firms to reimagine this, that particular building, that part of the site, and figure out a way to propel it forward. Um, and that, that building, I feel, is a really a metaphor for the whole project because it was designed by an iconic architect. It's not typical of his style of architecture. I mean, it looks, again, it looks like a carousel, really. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost garish. It has red and white stripes on it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's paradoxical on many levels. And then the fact that, you know, there's preservationists who want to keep it. There's people who don't really care. It's in the middle of a city park but there's not money to maintain it. I think that kind of encapsulates the, the complexity of a lot of these different places. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I, this is a little side note, but a few years ago, maybe 2008 or 2009, I found at a flea market, um, like in the East Village, I found a photo album that, of someone's uh, pictures that they took at the World's Fair. Hmm. In 1964. And it was very, it was really interesting because I, I don't, I, we didn't know each other then. So I didn't know of your project, but it was very yeah. interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting to, to see your pictures um, and to think about those pictures that were taken at the time, because of course, you know, there isn't a lot of emphasis on people's casual snapshots. There's not a lot of emphasis put on you know, photographing like structures or the way things look at a particular time, because when you're, you know, people take that for granted when you're moving through kind of time and space. Yeah. Um, but, it, but I, but I just, I, I love the idea of um, this whole book of people's uh, photographs or snapshots of their experience. They are kind of against the backdrop of, of your pictures and how it looks now. And, and then of course my own experiences of being there. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And actually, um, one of the contributing writers, Jennifer Minner, has included in her essay some vernacular pictures from the 60s. Mm. And it's, you know, because putting the book together was an interesting challenge, because on one hand, you could be really obvious and have, you know, then and now, right? Sure. Um, but, but I liked the idea better of kind of having my whole vision and then alluding to the then, you know, through the essays. And so just having those few photos of hers is so helpful, because especially with the New York State Pavilion, you can see that it had this, you know, mosaic map of the United States sponsored by Texaco, of course, on the floor, people roller skating through it and cartwheeling through it. And there's these colorful flags and this fiberglass uh, kind of tent-like top. So, you know, just to see the full energy that it once contained, um, I think kind of gives a nice, a nice reference point for the entire uh, monograph. So much optimism. Yeah, you know? I, that's what that's what I think of when you describe that. So much optimism in those, in in the in the experience of being there and in the locations. Yeah, um, what kind of research did you do? So you said you went to twenty five locations. Did you choose them before? This is like a two part question. Did you choose them uh, for particular reasons? And then one once you did choose them, did you do uh, a lot of research about those locations before you um, actually visited the locations? Sure. I mean, in the beginning, um, I can't remember what my initial approach was, but it was kind of find the most famous structures in Europe, right? So I did the Eiffel Tower, the Atomium in Brussels, um, uh, the Mies van der Rohe Pavilion in Barcelona, although that picture I messed up, so I can't, it's not in the book. Oh. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I have to go back to Barcelona. Um, and after the first year of shooting, I really had high goals to shoot the entire planet's worth of fairs. But the thing is, 
that's a lot of travel and a lot of cost, which, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, you know, kind of the logistics of getting to the sites started to dictate what, you know, what it would be, um, to begin with. Um, so basically I did, I think three trips to Europe to shoot, but I didn't shoot every site. It was more, the Atomium really caught my imagination. So I actually went back and shot that site again. Um, and you know, then those of you with children who are working artists will understand I had a kid and when you have a kid, it becomes a little more complex to say, I'm going to go to Australia for six weeks and shoot. So I started to think, well, logistically and with my life, how can I make this project happen? And I decided to tackle all of North America, which is many, many sites. Um, so most of the book is North America. And within North America, there's just a really incredible variety of design and preservation, again, you know, but per site. Um, so, you know, so then I was just kind of like making these big lists all the time and figuring out how to get there. Um, so sometimes I would sell work ahead of time. You know, I have several really wonderful collectors who helped with that. Um, I actually did fundraising through Kickstarter one year. Um, so kind of just logistically figuring out how to make it happen. Um, and, you know, and I was pleased when, when San Francisco was actually my final North American site, which I shot in 2015. Um, so that was, that was kind of how it happened. And then of course the closer sites like in New York, I was able to return to, you know, I would say I returned to that site probably 20 times to shoot the New York state pavilion. Um, so there's two, two images of that in the book and from 2007 and 2013. Um, so that was, so Logistics certainly played part of it, but another big part of it was was kind of figuring out um, what still remained by comparing Google Maps to the original fair maps. And I'm a map lover. I just, you know, I'm a total map geek, and these old fair maps are just gorgeous. They, you know, each one has this very specific design element to it. Um, these beautiful graphics and fonts and and totally different color palettes from, you know, the 1890s to 1960s, something like that. So the maps were really fun for me to work with and also just kind of emanated the zeitgeist of each era, um, just working with these old maps. How did you find the maps? Um, All different ways. Sometimes, you know, again, once after a few years of working on this project, people would reach out to me after they'd seen it featured here or there. Um, So sometimes people would send me stuff. Sometimes I'd find it on eBay Sometimes people would give it to me um, and then others I would just have to do, you know, several I just found on Google. So a a variety of methods. Um, Yeah. So basically then I would compare very carefully the, um, the, you know, the current Google map with the original. So technology definitely helped me because one thing I realized after the first year of shooting was that if, if I you know, do all the planning to get to a site and then I get there and there's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a little bit of a waste of time and, and, you know, materials and everything else. Um, so one thing I did prioritize, you know, besides the logistical aspects was, was just, you know, is there at least one building that represents certain ideals of that era, um, that, you know, makes it worthwhile for me to go there. Um, so that, you know, I would say after a year or two of shooting, just doing that research ahead of time was pretty important to make sure that I could come away with something that told this multifaceted, you know, narrative that I was interested in presenting. 
Interesting. So in let's go to the, the site that's in Queens. So you have two images from that World's Fair in the book. So describe for us what they are and why you think those buildings kind of embody the progressiveness or the ideas of that particular World's Fair. Sure. There's actually many pictures from the Queens site. I think about six pictures because, oh. of course, um, but there's two of the Philip Johnson New York State Pavilion specifically. I see. Um, so I can just, I mean, just focusing on that building itself, um, prior to the 1930s, the fairs were kind of looking backward and looking forward simultaneously. Whereas the more the 20th and 20th, 21st century fairs are more just looking forward, Mm. um, which is reflected in the architecture. So when you look at, um, the older architecture, most of it's neoclassical and kind of the conceptual framework for these events was look how far Anglo people have come compared to non-white people. So there was definitely a racist bent to the fairs, Mm -hmm. um, the earlier ones. And, you know, because this was kind of the prevailing attitude, the architecture, of course, reflected early Greek and Roman um, architectures. So kind of, you know, Western superior architecture. Um, but then moving forward, especially in the fifties and sixties, when the space race was on, everything kind of looked like it was from outer space. So Mm -hmm. it was really, um, I would say another kind of sub body of work within the full project are the mid century sites because they've just been a blast to photograph because, you know, again, Philip Johnson's New York state pavilion, it looks like a carousel, but it also looks like a spaceship could land on one of these landing pads. You know, it definitely has this otherworldly sensibility to it. Um, and also at the, at the 1964 fair site is a sculpture by a, a Polish artist named Theodore Rojak called forms in transit. And I, I can't remember the exact model of airplane, but it was, you know, look at this jet plane design. It's amazing. It's so futuristic, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of this sense of speed and outer space. And that picture I love, um, I don't know, page it's on offhand. Oh, here it is. It's on page 29, plate 10. Um, that picture I kind of love because it was supposed to represent this speed and um, euphoria of jet plane travel. And now the sculpture is kind of turning blackish and some parts of it have fallen off. And there's this massive shrubbery that's kind of concealing part of it that doesn't look very well tended to. So, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, all these funny little elements, I think, come together nicely in a contrast with the initial impulse of these of these designs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at that, too. And and it looks like the shrubberies. So, like was intended to be a part of the base of the of the sculpture, but I think you're te- you're kind of you're suggesting that it's not. It was something that was kind of added later after the initial installation. Well, I think it was probably there, but I think it's gotten a little so giant, lar- large, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an out of control shrubbery. <laughs> right, right. So you saw th- places on Google Maps. Um, so you saw like an aerial view or maybe you saw the street view as well. Like maybe you did a comparison of both of those, but when you actually got to the locations or certain locations, were you surprised by what you saw? Definitely. Because, um, as, as you mentioned before, a lot of these fair sites are just enormous. Um, and I usually allot myself three to six days per fair site, um, 
Because I don't, you know, if I was a commercial photographer, you just show up and you take a picture that's, you know, kind of clinical. But I was interested in, in sharing a much more multi-layered story. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually I would arrive there and start work. And I always carry these kind of marked up original fare maps with me as I, as I travel the site. And it's always a huge surprise that I find there because there's only so much work you can do remotely um, when doing a project like this. And I mean, I think that was also part of the appeal for me. I like orderliness to a body of work. Mm-hmm. And this was a particularly appealing because it's like, well, I can check things off. I can say I've done this site, this site, this site. But then when I get there, I have no idea what really to expect. No matter how much I prepare, I do not know what to expect. Um, so, you know, so for example, in Montreal, this was a site I returned to twice because it has just some of the most phenomenal fair relics on, you know, present. Um, so the cover of the book is actually from Montreal, Buckminster Fuller's 1967 geodesic dome. And, um, you know, there's this huge Alexander Calder stabile that is located on the fair site, but you can only get to this sculpture if you basically go through this meandering path through these kind of overgrown woods, because it's a huge site. And so they maintain a lot of it, but you know, there's kind of these, it's kind of a, an adventure, I would say, trying to find what's left at all these places because I can never actually predict everything that's there. Sure, sure. It's I'm kind sure. of a nice sense of discovery, like, oh, there's this huge sculpture. And in fact, in the second shoot I did there, which was just this last year, um, at another roundabout, there's this giant blue robot, which I just loved. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I was like, wow, you know, we just happened to pull the car this way. And there's this immense blue robot from 1967. And it's just hanging out in this car, car roundabout, you know? <laughs> wow. That's a, definitely sounds like a surprise <laughs> to see. So world's fairs, did they, they happen? I'm trying to re- re- remind myself, did they, did they happen every four years or was it every 10 years? Um, in the beginning in the 19th century, they had them sometimes two to three, two a year and then two to four wow. years. So it was, I don't know, it was all the rage in the 19th century. And of course, that's a lot of the discussion now is that they're not valid anymore. And um, in fact, there were even protests against the last fair in um, Milan in 2015, because, you know, people are kind of saying, well, the economy is not great here. Why is all this money being thrown at this, you know, unnecessary mm-hmm. overblown event? Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, I just lost the thread. Of the, uh, how often they um, oh. <laughs> appear, or how, they were had, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. um, so, yes, in the 19th century, they were held very frequently. Later on, it was every two to four years. Um, mm-hmm. But there were definitely some, uh, definitely some years where things were a little bit awry. So, for example, 1962 was the Seattle World's Fair, which was one of the most successful. And of course, we had the Space Needle and the and Seattle Science Center and a lot of really great architecture that's left from, from that event. And so because America had participated in 1962, it was understood that 1964 or 66 or, you know, whatever the next one would be, would not be in America. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's an overseeing governing body of the World's Fairs called the Bureau of International Expositions based in Paris. And they have to approve a fair and also countries have to pay a membership to belong to this organization. So 1964, Robert Moses wanted to have a world's fair and the BIE said, 
no, it's, you know, can't, you can't, the United States can't have another World's Fair. We ju- you just had one in 1962 in Seattle. But it was Robert Moses. He gets his way, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he really wanted that energy and also kind of the money to, to transform um, part of New York again. And he had these childhood memories of attending the 1939 fair in Queens. And so he wanted to reuse that site and build something even grander and more exciting. Um, so, uh, so the 1964 fair was actually a non-approved world's fair. And it's been only through the test of time and collective memory that it's become kind of officialized. So interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. So does that mean that there were fewer countries who were involved in in the actual fair itself, like who'd set up pavilions? Yes, exactly right. So that fair did have some international participation, but much less than an officially sanctioned one. Mm-hmm. And it was much more about consumer-driven interests. So there were a lot of corporate pavilions, you know, the General Motors Pavilion, the Westinghouse Pavilion, the oh. IBM Pavilion. So there was a lot, it was much more consumer-based than perhaps some of the other fairs of that time. So did that mean that that the subsequent fairs were um, kind of shifted then away from that, you know, from countries exhibiting more towards corporations exhibiting? It started to become a bit of a mix. I mean, then in 1967 in Montreal, um, that was a, you know, one of the most successful events and they had a really good mix of kind of intellectual and artistic ingenuity and corporate presence. But I would say proportionally, there's probably more corporate presence in in New York in 1964. That was a Mm. major driving force. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I I remember seeing the, the Ames documentary. Did you see that? Yes. And they, and he does, and Charles Ames designed, I'm not going to remember. It was, he designed the, like the, the display for one of the, the, um, like for a, for a corporate client, if I'm not mm. mistaken. So that's I was I was wondering if that was a part of the if his work then was a part of like the the United States Pavilion or if it was a particular pavilion within the section that you, the United States occupied for that 1977, 76, 78, like that time frame. Yes, I can't remember offhand, um, but there's a good chance they were part of one of these corporate pavilions um, because a lot of them were advertising interiors, suburban living, um, vacuum cleaners, things like that, you know, that were very much of that time period. Uh, I'm particularly intrigued by Plate 51, which is the New Orleans 1884 World's Fair. Um, It is a, a, a big piece of ore. So the ah. iron ore exhibition. And currently the, this large piece of ore sits in what looks like a well-kept but very open field. Yes, it's actually a golf course. <laughs> really? Oh, I w- did not guess that at all from the picture. Yeah, there's uh-huh. very back, very far in the background, there's a little golfing cart and some gentlemen, you know, with their clubs and everything. Um, yeah, so this, <laughs> I love this picture because it's so bizarre compared to everything else. Everything else is so much about these bucolic landscapes or these funny little buildings. Um, so, so New Orleans was another site I went to twice. And um, this is one of the earlier sites. And as a result, there's no actual structures left. Only the landscaping of Audubon Park remains. But wow. then I saw this thing and lined it up with my map and realized this is from the Alabama Iron Ore Exhibition um, because iron ore would have been, you know, a source of power 
at that time. And, um, you know, kind of these very mundane, well, see, I shouldn't say very, but seemingly mundane topics got entire displays at the older fairs. There were entire, there'd be entire huge buildings of examples of cotton, you know, whole displays of chickens laying eggs. So <laughs> this wow. is kind of, you know, it's a very strange picture visually, but it also reflects that there's this kind of pride in industry and utilitarian, um, you know, agricultural purposes that was actually on display in the fair, in addition to the things that you think of, like technology and arts and, and other more highfalutin topics. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it, it's very much, it, it, it reminds me or it suggests to me, I guess, that that what people were interested in in 1884 and what they were, you know, wanted to highlight or, or um, to underscore were, um, you know, were things that were very different than, say, 1964 and 1970, the 1970s. So yeah. just this giant piece of ore. Did you, did you, um, did you, are things like, how did the ore get there and who put the ore there? And are there things like that as a part of um, like the history of World's Fair or whoever created the, the iron ore exhibit? Do they mm -hmm. have that information? Is that information available as a part of your research or available that to you? Yeah, that information mm -hmm. probably is. That site is one of the ones I've had more difficulty finding background information on. Some of them are some of the older ones are pretty mysterious. Um, but just to contrast it, I was able to find this fantastic book from 1893, and it's called New York at the Columbian Exposition. And of course, the 1893 fair in Chicago is one of the best, most iconic fairs of, the, of all of them. Mm -hmm. And this book, if you can picture it, is about four inches thick and lists every single item that was just in the New York building. So if you can imagine how big these events were. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah. And, you know, so I've been, you know, I've. I often page through this book because it's really entertaining. And um, so literally a whole page to the working man's average meal. And it lists everything a working man would eat, like a scoop of potatoes, some cold porridge, you know, this and that. And like, this is a display, you know? Wow. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. It's just a, it's a different worldview, a different context. And sure. that's one of the that's one of the things I love about this project, that each site, um, especially with just a little digging, kind of becomes this prism of what life was like then and what was a priority, because every 10, 20 years is just a completely different, it, there's a paradigm shift, you know? And um, so, yeah, what was what was of import in the 19th century wasn't necessarily something we might want to see in a display now. Right. And I, and I also think it's interesting, too, that the mind that thought, let's make a book that lists everything that's in the, these, this particular pavilion. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a whole different mindset. And a whole, that's a, a kind of an insane project to create a book <laughs> that's four inches thick that's just essentially lists. Where there, are there images as a part of that book, too? There are those, these really nice plates in the book. Oh. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's like for someone like me, that's like very exciting. Kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love that book. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. So, um, which was your favorite place to shoot? Hmm. Um, well, I, I would say early on, I had a really great experience shooting the Chicago site in 2008. And if you actually go to the very very end of the book to page 127, plate 63. Mm -hmm. um, this is certainly another one of the more unexpected pictures in, in this 
book. And in 2008, um, I just read Eric Larson's incredible book, The Devil in the White City. So that was just as I was kind of diving into this project. And for those of you who haven't read it, it's just a, you know, it's murder intrigue and the Colombian exposition because it, it was one of the most important of the 19th century fairs, brought together some of the greatest minds in design and architecture, such as McKim Mead and White and Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, but concurrently, there was a serial killer operating just outside the fairgrounds. <laughs> so it's, it's a fantastic book. Wow. <laughs> Um, so I just read that and through some of my contacts at the school of visual arts, um, I, a gentleman at the, um, Chicago art Institute met with me to show me some of the original plates of the 1893 fair. Um, so that was just a great experience because every fair, especially in the 19th century was really tied into photography. I mean, photography was such a medium of the industrial age and the fairs were such a product of the industrial age. And so hire, you know, a really respectable job would be to get hired to shoot a world's fair and you would get paid a very handsome amount and you'd make these really beautiful souvenir books to sell to visitors. Um, So, you know, seeing these original prints was just fantastic because they're these big uh, direct contact prints. I think they were, some of them were 16 by 20, some of them were 11 by 14. And, you know, the Columbian Exposition was, was, mind-boggling it was acres and acres of these gleaming white buildings and it showed electricity for the first time um it was you know and it was directly to compete against the 1890 1889 exposition in paris and the eiffel tower um and chicago fought really hard to get the you know to achieve the honor of hosting a world's fair because 1893 chicago is kind of seen as uh, country bumpkins they had all the stockyards there um and it, you know, wasn't seen on par with New York or Paris in terms of cultural cachet. Mm-hmm. Um, so this fair kind of established Chicago as a serious metropolis. And, um, you know, there's just so much information about the design there and, and kind of what went into it. It was just a, it was, it was really extraordinary. Um, now all that's left of the fair is one building, um, it was the Palace of Fine Arts, and now it's the Museum of Science and Industry, which is at the northern end of Jackson Park. And so again, you know, I got to the fair site with my map, and it's a huge, huge fair site. Um, Jackson Park is quite large, and it borders um, Lake Michigan on one side, and then I think on the southern side, I might be wrong, but is uh, University of Chicago, and some neighborhoods border the the other sides of it. Um, so some of Frederick Law Olmsted's landscaping is there, but a lot of it's kind of overgrown in this lush, very beautiful way. And, you know, working off of the map, I decided to find in physical space where the largest fair building would have stood because um, the largest fair building was enormous. It was this huge glass and iron. Um, you, you can kind of picture a huge Victorian greenhouse, um, you know, just this huge, huge, immense building. And there's nothing left. Um, now when they constructed the 1893 site, initially they were just going to, to save this one building, but there was some talk about whether or not they should make some of the other buildings permanent because they were made out of these kind of semi-permanent materials that would be easy to demolish after two years. Um, but before the final decision could be made, most of the fair site was lost to arson. And so, 
Yeah. And so just, you know, kind of this tragic end to this phenomenal event kind of set my imagination off. And I thought, well, how can I kind of create a picture of nothingness that kind of has a real presence, you know? Um, so, you know, it's just an experiment, but I decided to set up my camera and, and do these very long exposures where the building once stood and the, and the title reflects that it's called site of manufacturer, liberal arts building, grand Paris style and agriculture, agricultural building. Um, so basically I did these long exposures. I had no idea what would happen. And so I think this one was about a 25 minute exposure. And when I got the film back, it was like, I felt really excited because I <laughs> these colors are you know, I couldn't have predicted these wild blue and yellow colors. And I just felt that it really captured the mystery of what I learned about this event and the dark, you know, kind of the dark history and the beauty of it. And I thought that was kind of captured well in this picture that I could not have predicted. Wow. That's, that's a pretty fantastic story. I mean, and, and, um, and I like that you're, you're using as a part of your process, your kind of, you know, you've got kind of mystery and question marks kind of built in. So you're not just being surprised and, you know, excited when you get to a site and kind of exploring what's there, but you're using, you know, the medium of photography to also have an experience that kind of parallels your physical physical experience of exploration as well. Yes, exactly. That's great. What are you working on now? Um, Well, right now I've so I've just moved out of New York City after 20 years there. Um, so at the moment, I'm kind of exploring the Hudson Valley and um, just kind of getting comfortable in this new territory. So that's one thing I'm working on. Um, I've also been kind of exploring the work of Paul Rudolph because he's another mm-hmm. or he's, you know, he's this great architect also from mid-century whose work has had a, you know, unpredictable run, you know, in terms of preservation and and. Um, what to do with it because often these mid-century buildings are quite fragile and have you know aged and and you know in in kind of unpredictable ways Mm -hmm. Um, so those are two directions I'm kind of moving right now Um, taking a break from the world's fair for now because you know there's a lot of shows coming up around the book and talks and things like that Um, so just kind of moving slowly into this new more pastoral environment Mm -hmm. and and seeing um you know, what can become of it. So right now I've just been doing some just kind of fun things, long exposures around, around the neighborhood and things like that. Kind of so, playing with light and dark. Sure. Are you shooting in color or, or black and white? Um, shooting all large format color. So yeah, Exciting. still flogging out the nice big camera. And <laughs> do you get, do you get questions from people about your not using digital? Like, how come you haven't switched to digital? Why aren't you? Why are you still shooting film? Do you get those definitely? Kind of and it's kind of funny because, um, you know, on one hand, I feel well, well, so what? As long as you are making the work you want to make, you know, what does it matter? But it was kind of funny because one of my mentors on Facebook, she always likes to kind of post articles to get everybody's feathers ruffled. And so this French photographer wrote this whole editorial saying how absurd it is to shoot film and how stupid. And how it's just for hipsters who want to be different. <laughs> like mm-hmm. um, so my feathers got a little bit ruffled and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, you know, whatever your process is, your, you know, that should reflect your approach. And, you know, right now is a very complex time in terms of photography. You know, I think if you're a commercial photographer, you have to shoot digital. There's absolutely no reason to shoot film. You know, the cameras are great. The cost of production is um, 
it's still expensive, but at least you don't have to, you know, do all your film processing and stuff like that. Um, I like the struggle of the large format camera. I think it's, you know, I feel like I'm speeding around so much and especially with, you know, the iPhone addiction and all of that. Mm-hmm. I, I like to be forced to kind of really slow down and consider um, what it is I'm trying to show, especially when shooting architecture. You know, buildings go through years and years and years of production. You know, there's a lot of consideration given to the site and how it's created. And so I like to kind of respect that and and use a similarly um, considerate approach when I'm creating pictures. Um, you know, I, I feel that shooting any piece of architecture, you need to really think about the site on which it's situated, how it responds to that site, because often they're intertwined. And, um, you know, then the obvious things like light, light and dark and, and how to deal with that. So, you know, for me, um, for now, anyway, I just, you know, and I also love going under the dark cloth, because then I'm in a different world. You know, if Mm. I'm just holding something up to my eye, it's, you're not really separated. And I feel that when I'm under under my, my dark cloth, I'm kind of, you know, just immersed in in this other, this new world that I'm creating, which is what I think a, a good photograph should do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining that um, and your your experience with that. I wanted I wanted to ask about a little bit about that earlier, but it just we got out of order in terms of the how how I was asking specific questions. Um, sure. So back to your book, Lost Utopias, um, which we're we are talking in its September, but but um, this podcast is going will be available in October, which is when your book is going to come out. When, when your book is available, how can people find your book? Certainly. Um, the easiest way is just to go to the publisher's website, which is Black Dog London. So that's one way. Uh, we're also going to be offering it at, you know, Barnes and Noble and many, you know, many bookstores, especially in the New York area, probably some museum shops as well. So, um, yeah, so basically through the publisher, you know, some copies in the studio as well, but you know, and I'll be posting information on my website as there's going to be a lot of upcoming talks and, and things like that around the book. Great. And your website is jade, J-A-D-E, doskow, D-O-S-K-O-W.com? Uh, jadedoskophotography.com. Okay. Yeah. Okay. jadedoskophotography.com. And we'll put that, we'll add that so that if you're finding this podcast through some someplace online, you'll be able to, to click through to, uh, to get to her website and also to access publisher as well. Um, yeah, well, and also, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and lastly, um, there will be a book launch, book launch event October 13th in Red Hook, Brooklyn, um, at Pioneer Bookstore on Van Brunt Street. So if any of you listening are in the New York area, October 13th should be a, a really lovely evening celebrating the launch of the book. Great. Well, congratulations on your new book and on a really fantastic project. And thank, thank you. you for talking with us. Great. Thanks a lot, Lorena. Thank you.